Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let go with Ego. Existen dos tipos de personas en el mundo. Los que prefieren un desayuno dulce con frutas, dulce de leche y un jugo de naranja. Y los que prefieren un desayuno salado con chorizo, huevos rancheros y un café. Pero sin importar qué tipo de persona eres, hay algo que a todos les va a gustar. Los crujientes y esponjosos Ego Waffles. Ya sea que te guste un desayuno salado, con huevos o salsa picante encima de tus waffles, o seas más dulcero y los prefieras con mantequilla y miel. Encuéntranos en el pasillo de desayunos congelados. Lego with Ego. Hi everybody, I'm Joanna and this is Hyphenated, the podcast about living in the hyphen. Today I have a very special guest. Um, I gave him the honor of joining this podcast. He's a he's a longtime fan of the podcast and of me, actually, since the day I was born. Uh, it's crazy. So my dad, Ricardo Hausmann, is a very well-known economist. In fact, a lot of people tend to be shocked when they find out that Ricardo Hausmann has a daughter that does what she does. So I'm super excited to have my dad joining me on this podcast. We're, we're actually, this is the first time we record hyphenated outdoors Because my dad said, we, I mean, this is, it's a beautiful day. We should record the podcast outdoors. I didn't want to, but here we are. So if you hear some birds stinging, and now you know why. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. There, there are chorus. There are chorus. They're supporting us. They're telling us we're doing a good job. Bobby, you've been listening to Hyphenated since it came out. Since it came out. You listen to every week. Every week, religiously. But it's funny because you listen to mostly, like, ever since I have consciousness, you devour complicated books and, like, lessons on tape and, I don't know, metaphysical explanations of whatever by a dude called Dr. Greenberg. Like, you're, you're always constantly feeding your brain with really high-level high intellectual content. I'm shocked you listen to Hyphenated. Is it just because you miss me or? Well, I mean, I do miss you. I mean, I live in Boston and in the Berkshires, you live in New York. I don't see enough of you. So I definitely miss you. But I think this is a pretty intellectual thing. You're constantly thinking deeply about, you know, what makes Latin American societies different? In what dimensions do they differ? And, and how human experiences are different in about a birthday party or about the you know, growing up as a girl or as whatever it is, you find interesting insights into the nature of of the societies you have grown up in. And, and I find that fascinating. Well, that's very similar to what you do, except you do it more with numbers, right? So ever since I was very young, I knew that you, your class at Harvard was called Why Are Some Countries Poor, Volatile, and? Unequal. Unequal. And other, uh, no, and that's, that's it. it. There's no rich country. Actually, why are so many countries poor, volatile, and unequal? Oh, wow. It's, a, it's an uplifting <laughs> title. <laughs> so I am going to be honest with you. I, I tend to not have a lot of patience uh, when you sort of have tried to teach me about economic theory and about why so many countries are poor, volatile, and unequal. But, you know, now I'm 33. So I'm an adult, officially, sort of, not really, kind of, I'm trying. Um, 
yesterday I got in trouble because I showed my nephews Scream 5 and no one slept and everyone's mad at me in the house except for my dad. Uh, (laughs) So I don't know how adult I am, but I am someone that really likes to analyze human existence, culture, and I think that's what economics sort of is, except it's why, why do the number, like, I mean, it might have quant in it, but ultimately it's about humans and, and the resources they have around them. Right. Right. So, you know, some people have math phobia, but really. Like I have math phobia. You tried to teach me math and you, it's the only time you yelled at me when I was little is when I didn't understand how to do integers. Anyway, continue. So math is what the people who are not extremely smart use to keep track of what they're saying. So, you know, if you're extremely smart, you can follow your own logic. If, if it gets too complicated, it's better to write it down as equations and and let the algebra do the work that your thinking would have done otherwise. So actually, it is something that makes thinking easier, not harder. I mean, that that's for you, because you're a math genius. You know, I, I barely scrape by uh, in algebra. But imagine me as a grade schooler, okay? Imagine me, which you can, because you always tell me you miss me as a grade schooler. Um, imagine I'm a grade schooler. I want you to walk me through basically a semester of your class in 30 minutes but also i have the brain of a not as smart person okay so i would say the following you know um, uh, the difference between uh, rich countries and poor countries uh-huh. is that rich countries know how to do more stuff and so in some sense uh, the most important thing there is in life is knowing how to do stuff this is what your students at harvard pay so much money for Imagine. <laughs> I'm kidding. When people ask me, how come you have a daughter who's a comedian and so on? And I say, what do you think I am? I entertain people. I'm in the entertainment business. They pay me a lot of money to entertain them. Right? I do like a mini series, which is called The Course. It has like 24 episodes, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and you want people to be entertained so that they remember. And, and you want to use metaphors and jokes and stuff. So I don't know that our two fields are that distant from each other. That's true. High five. High five. Okay, back to the lesson plan. So let's concentrate on Latin America because you love Latin America. I love Latin America. We're from Latin America. A lot of our uh, audio... How do we say? It's not televidentes. (laughs) Podescuchas. And nuestro podescuchas are also very interested in Latin America. So why don't we take Latin America sort of like a case study, all right? So which country in Latin America would you say, hey, you know what you're doing. You're doing good. High five. Well, you know, unfortunately, we don't have sort of like great examples of, of, of superb success in Latin America. I would say that, you know, countries like Costa Rica, Uruguay, Maybe Chile had been doing relatively better than than others, but but I I am you know as a Latin American I look at other parts of the world and ask why can't we replicate that why can't we do that and mm-hmm. and, and so I've been struggling to ask myself you know what could be sort of like the secret sauce and in the end I think that there is no secret sauce and that's why these things cannot be solved uh, overnight mm-hmm. and it takes time. Now, the fundamental issue is uh, 
is know-how, is to know how to do things. Because, you know, in the end, you know, we are here in the countryside, this is a beautiful thing, you have a beautiful meadow, etc. But you don't want a beautiful meadow, you want an omelet with toast and coffee and milk. How do you go from a beautiful meadow to an omelet? Well, you know, somebody needs to know how to um, grow chicks and, and, and chickens and eggs and, and, and cows and milk and cheese. And, and all of these things are transformations of the world that are pers- purposefully done by humans so that, you know, you can have an omelet. You know, I love that you use the example of omelet because that's the only thing you've ever cooked me. Well, it's the only thing I know how to cook. <laughs> <laughs> we have that in common as well. <laughs> so tell me a country that has a great amount of know-how and 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 knows how and knows how to appropriately use that know-how to i don't know i guess export import i know those two words <laughs> okay so you know it's amazing if you look at countries say like austria it's a country of i don't know some 10 million people mm-hmm. uh, and they do everything you could imagine they know how to do everything uh, they do machines they do pharmaceuticals, they do whatever. They, they do all the complicated things to do. I use a simple metaphor. You see, the difference between uh, countries that know how to do a lot of things and countries that know how to do few things is not because the countries that know how to do a lot of things are full of geniuses. Right. So it's not something that happens at the level of the individual. Right. It is something that happens at the level of the society because, you know, to tell you the truth, The number of books written every year keeps on growing exponentially. Mm -hmm. The number of books ever written grows even faster, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have all the books of the past plus what it grows every year. Our capacity to read those books is not growing. I mean, Oscar Wilde would probably have read more books than I could ever. Probably. But I I have so much more books to read, right? So because there's just so much more stuff out there. So it's impossible for people to know everything. So the way knowledge grows is not by putting all the knowledge on every head, but by putting different bits of knowledge in different heads. Uh, so as a consequence, you know, your dentist tends not to be your lawyer. You know, it depends. You you don't you don't know Dr. Shlomo, you know, I'm kidding. Of course. Right. And it's you go to different people for and you know what I've noticed? Remember when I had that really horrible bike accident? Mm-hmm where um, I shattered my elbow in 60 places and we were in the middle of Cape Cod and we were in this hospital that I guess was kind of in a more rural part and there were no specialized doctors. And then we flew into Boston, sort of almost like an emergency, and we went to a doctor that specialized only in elbows. He did not operate anything other than elbows. But, you know, in other places you would have a general orthopedic surgeon do that surgery. But since we were in Boston and there was so much know-how, I guess, and so many people that this doctor could specialize and only look at elbows. So, I mean, he probably had some of the most famous tennis players come and hang with him, you know? Absolutely. So, so that is, you've captured something very, very important. Say the difference between a poor country and a rich country is a little bit like the difference between uh, the medical facility up there in Cape Cod near... Provincetown, uh, where you were first treated, and you know uh, the major city hospital, say MGH. In the major city hospital, doctors have specialized. Yeah. 
So some do only elbows and others do only hand and others do only knees, etc. Okay, but the hospital as a whole has diversified. So the hospital can do many, many things, yeah. not because its doctors can individually do many, many things, uh-huh. but because you put different bits of know-how in different heads. And then put it all in the same place. So that hospital is like Austria. Exactly. Oh my God. Exactly. Look at that. Look at that. This type of math I can do. Austria equals hospital. Exactly. There it is. It just, exactly. if you take the numbers away, I can do the math. Okay, so give me another example of a country that has the high-quality hospital-like attributes of know-how. And maybe give me an example of a country who maybe has all, all this know-how, but maybe doesn't have the hospital, doesn't have the system to put all these people in the same place. Or, you know, or maybe those people, that those elbow doctors, go to another hospital, go to another country. So attracting talent has always been a source of acceleration because, you know, Malcolm Gladwell says it takes 10,000 hours to become really good at something. Yeah, that's why I'm so great at complaining. (laughs) I'm doing all my dad jokes. (laughs) So 10,000 hours is at 40 hours a week is five years. And we don't have chunks of five years to spare in a lifetime. So we tend to uh, become good at few things. But we need, our prosperity depends on Everybody else knowing about different things. We, I don't know how to make antibiotics. I don't know how to make shoes. I don't know how to make cars. I don't know how to make gasoline. I don't know how to make entertainment. I don't know how to make many things that I consume. I think you're very entertaining. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let go with Ego. Existen dos tipos de personas en el mundo. Los que prefieren un desayuno dulce con frutas, dulce de leche y un jugo de naranja. Y los que prefieren un desayuno salado con chorizo, huevos rancheros y un café. Pero sin importar qué tipo de persona eres, hay algo que a todos les va a gustar. Mm. Los crujientes y esponjosos Ego Waffles. Ya sea que te guste un desayuno salado con huevos o salsa picante encima de tus waffles. O seas más dulcero y los prefieras con mantequilla y miel. Encuéntranos en el pasillo de desayunos congelados. Lego with Ego. So, how does this know-how get into those brains? Well, it takes a long time, as Malcolm Gladwell says. It takes 10,000 hours. But... Assuming uh, the 10,000 hours, these five years it takes to become good at something, say, how long does it take to move a brain? I mean, it depends on if you're flying Delta, you know, you could be 20 if, minutes late. <laughs> if, if it's Delta, it must take forever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the fusion of know-how has always had a lot to do with the movement of people. And that's, that's one thing that tends to accelerate the process of growth. It's that if you don't know how to do something, you just bring somebody who does. Because... Typically, you don't know how to do the things you don't do, and you cannot start doing the things that you don't do because to start doing those things, you have to know how to do them, but you don't know how to do the things you don't do. You get caught in a loop. If there's not one person that knows how to do something, then you're never going to learn how to do it. So, yeah, you know, you won't find watchmakers in places that don't make watches. But then how do you become a watchmaker in a place that doesn't make watches? But you need watchmakers to make watches. So how do you get the process going? So... So human mobility has always been a, a very important source of technology diffusion. And there's a lot of obstacles that people put uh, to the movement of, of, of humans. 
you know, typically at a border, there's a policeman. He asks for for a visa, a permit, a passport, etc. And if you want to get a job, you need to, you know, you have some requirements. For example, to be a university professor at a public university in Panama, you have to be a citizen of Panama. That's so dumb. Yeah. And and there are like 29 professions that are reserved only for citizens of Panama. So wait, are what you're saying is countries that open themselves up to talent from anywhere and that facilitate the movement of know-how into their country, oh, sorry, immigration, those tend to be successful because they're bringing those brains into the hospital. They're bringing those elbow doctors in. Absolutely. And let me give you an extreme example. I love extreme examples. Bring it on. Okay. So everybody, you know, they say that Silicon Valley is the only place in the world that does not want to become like Silicon Valley. Wait, okay. What, what, why, what? That, this feels like a riddle. I feel like I'm under a bridge and a little troll came out and told me a riddle. What is this riddle? Well, I mean, everybody wants to become Silicon Valley, except if you already are. Okay, okay. So, Silicon Valley is sort of like has captured the imagination of the world. Because what, it's, it's like a center of innovation and like vests? It's center of innovation and startups and unicorns and billionaires and, Got it. And, and, and and it's like cool billionaires that wear sweatshirts and that you know may have created a social media outlet that could bring down democracy kind of that like like that it, it's something like that <laughs> so in silicon valley 54 percent of the technical workers what they call the stem workers the science mm -hmm. technology engineering and math workers 54 percent mm -hmm. are foreigners oh my goodness that's that's cool and the other 46% are not Californians. Shut up. Wait. Even though California is a state of 40 million people, only 18% are Californians. Wait. So the secret of Silicon Valley is the incredible capacity to attract talent. Wow. Yeah, because you go there and it's not that nice. Well, I don't know. I like it. Really? <laughs> you know, I'm not a huge fan of California. But, okay, so within those people that aren't from, from the U.S., what are some like what are some countries that are represented in that? There's a lot of Indians. There's a lot of Asian, East Asians, and interestingly enough, there's this professor at Berkeley. Her name is Annalise Saxenian. Mm -hmm. She wrote a very interesting book on how these foreigners that went to Silicon Valley ended up transforming their home countries. So oh. you have cities like Bangalore and Hyderabad that are mm -hmm. deeply connected to Silicon Valley on the basis of some people who went to Silicon Valley, got their H-1B visas, then got their H-1B visas renewed, then applied for a green card, never got one, could not renew their H-1B visa, so they went back home. And they oh, went yeah. back home and they set up shop with their business contacts in Silicon Valley and dramatically transformed uh, the economy of, of some places in India. And the same thing you can say about um, Taiwan, the same thing you can say about Korea, the same thing you can say about Israel. So these are, uh, these are places that are transformed by their diaspora, by people who've gone to other places where there's a lot of technology and uh, acquired the know-how while working there and then help transform their home country. We see it right now. I mean, there's a, a very set of very interesting examples in in Silicon Valley and Latin America, there's a guy called Alejandro Torrenegra. Mm -hmm. 
I hope he listens to us. I mean, Alejandro Black Tower, that sounds like he is a, a villain in a, a superhero film. But you know what? I'm into it. Okay, what, what's up with him? Well, he created a software company that solves uh, business IT systems for companies. And, and uh, he has a website called Torre. Uh -huh. and, and in order to solve these problems, he needs to hire people. But they don't need to be near him, so he can hire people anywhere. And since he's from Colombia, so he hired a bunch of Colombians. And so oh, no, there's pues a mira. bunch of Colombians now working uh, uh, for Torre. And But since he needs more, he has had to set up shop elsewhere. And since he doesn't find enough trained people, he's had to train them in, in the business. So that one person opening up shop, in Latin America is bringing know-how to the rest of Latin America that otherwise perhaps wouldn't have had the opportunity. Because he is in Silicon Valley. Oh, wow. Because he's in Silicon Valley. And there's another guy, I remember his first name because it was very memorable. First name is Bismarck. Wow. Remember when you were going to call me Minerva? <laughs> that would have really helped my branding. You know, there's a lot of Joannas, not a lot of Minervas. Anyway, okay, Bismarck. He has um, another company also that, that does software development for other companies. And he needs talent. And since he cannot get the talent, he's from Guadalajara, Mexico. So he set up a school to train the people that he wants, that he needs to hire. That's great. And now he has like several tens of thousands of people that are being trained in part for his company, but they can go and do uh, anything uh, in Latin America and across the world. And that's because, you know, somebody from Guadalajara moved to Silicon Valley and had connections in Guadalajara. And it's not enough to say, oh, we're in a connected world. And because of the internet, like you can get know-how from anywhere. There's also the human element of, of making those pieces connect together. You know, Getting know-how into brain is very difficult. You're a teacher and you're my dad. You know that. I know that. <laughs> it's, it's one thing, you know, to pass information. Yeah. So pass information is, you know, when did Christopher Columbus arrive? And, right. And then if, if you don't remember it, you can Google it and, and you'll find that. It's a very different thing to learn, say, how to play tennis or to play the violin, right? Yeah. That, that takes many, many years of just practice and improvement and practice and improvement. And know-how is a little bit like that. It's not. I something... will say this, though. The practice and improvement in sports, uh, DNA has something to do with it. So thank you for your DNA because I was never able to become a famous sports player. But we can we can leave that for another episode. Sorry to interrupt. No, I, I, can, uh, I can commiserate with you. <laughs> it's not that we don't put the effort. It's not that we don't put the effort. We just don't, no matter how much effort we put in, we are limited, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I still enjoy the physical activity. Yeah, I know you're addicted to your bicycle. Yeah, right now, yes. <laughs> yeah, I've gone through phases. You do, you my, do. my current phase is, is bicycle. I don't know why boomer dads, they either get into barbecue World War II or bicycles, but you got into all three. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, they make a good combination. Uh, so uh, where I, where was I? I don't know. We have we both have ADD. This, this <laughs> I shouldn't have taken us off course. You were talking about putting know-how into brains yes. and how that's difficult. It's, it, it's difficult because it doesn't involve understanding. It's a wiring of the brain. It's like, you know, how do you learn how to walk? Well, it's not by people explaining you the concept of no, walking and you're so trying. you just uh, you just try to walk and you fall and you, you get up and and until you sort of like your brain gets it 
Yeah. But you don't know what muscles you move when you walk. You don't know how to, you regulate your heartbeat. Yeah, I can't breathing. tell. I, if someone had never walked a day in their life and they had to explain, I had to explain to them how to do it. I'd be like, you put one foot in front of the other, and that's so unhelpful, because <laughs> it's not like, oh, you lift your knee at this angle, and then you 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 don't think about it. Yeah. You just do it. Exactly, and that's what we once you once you have know how, you cannot understand other people not understanding because you see it so obvious. That's what 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 makes me lose my temper that. Uh, with you that, uh, you know, I want you to do something. I see it. It's it's sort of like obvious and clear because I have know-how. Since you don't have that know-how, you don't see it. And I cannot understand why you don't see it if it's so obvious. So, yes, yes. So so you know, you know why. You, you you understand, but you still get angry at me when I don't know how to do. I, I try not to, but, you know, it's... Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. But it's like me when you, your mom, don't understand how to, like, turn on a TV because you have 14 remote controls. Like, this is now my... <laughs> Revenge. Exactly. Because I get mad at you because you can't keep up with technology. Exactly. You know? This it's a tale as old as time. This is all this is what all generational strife is about, you know? Absolutely. How homework? Specifically math homework and remote controls. Well, now you see, whenever I have a, a problem with some electronic piece, yes, equipment and so on, I know that my grandchildren are probably better than my children at fixing it. I know that's really depressing. Um, I see it every day that I'm with my nieces and nephews. I feel that know-how is, is not something that someone taught them. They were just they're just immersed in their environment, which is something that I wanted to ask you. Which is, you know, some cultures and countries create specific types of talent, and it's not because the people are any biologically different. It's just because of their surroundings. And I remember reading uh, about how a lot of the STEM industry is made up of specifically people from China, because of how math is correlated and integrated into language. Like the language Mandarin, I don't know, I don't, I don't quote me, I'm not the professor here, but that even language has some mathematical like element to it. So math is like walking. It just becomes a more natural part of someone's existence versus maybe, I don't know, I'm trying to find reasons why there's certain certain cultures that tend to make people that are really good at certain things. Well, in in this case, it's a little bit of a new phenomenon. That is that the levels of schooling in China mm -hmm. were historically very low. They had a very, very educated elite mm -hmm. that was very nurtured to work for the state mm -hmm. from you know millennia ago. But the majority of the people got very, very little education. And, and really, uh, the growth of education in China, Korea, Japan is something uh, you know, less than a century old. So, so it's not these millennial old cultural things, totally. but something more recent, mm -hmm. but probably mixed with something you say, which is the fact that their writing is not phonetic, but pictoric, mm -hmm. right? So a word is captured by a, a symbol and in some sense that's what math is it's symbols oh. it's not phonetic it's symbols that represent something so so there's some some similarity between this pictoric interpretation of of a style of writing and 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 math math is also in some sense uh, pictoric. it's like hieroglyphics to me that's why i married someone that can do my taxes <laughs> so that's a division of knowledge you see interesting Life is a highway, 
and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let go with Ego. Existen dos tipos de personas en el mundo. Los que prefieren un desayuno dulce con frutas, dulce de leche y un jugo de naranja. Y los que prefieren un desayuno salado con chorizo, huevos rancheros y un café. Pero sin importar qué tipo de persona eres, hay algo que a todos les va a gustar. Los crujientes y esponjosos Ego Waffles. Ya sea que te guste un desayuno salado, con huevos o salsa picante encima de tus waffles, o seas más dulcero y los prefieras con mantequilla y miel. Encuéntranos en el pasillo de desayunos congelados. Lego with Ego. The interesting thing is that what I think is, is the right way to think about it is that when suddenly a society starts to absorb technology and, and starts to learn to do more things, Then the payoff to getting a better education starts going up. Wait, so you're saying once there's more opportunities for these more specific jobs, the the more reason there is for education to to be an impetus. Yes. So families suddenly realize that the kids that got a little bit more schooling did much better than the kids that didn't, because then they got into these jobs in these semiconductor firms or in these in these car manufacturers and these other things and 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 or they got into R&D and whatever and and so they they realized that uh, investments in a child's education pays off in terms of a different lifestyle if you if what you were going to do is to work on a farm the rest of your life it didn't matter if you know if you could read homer in the original or not right <laughs> so so it was not related to uh, to your prosperity i mean it's very interesting if you remember fiddler on the roof There's this soliloquy, a, a song by Tevier, where he says, if I were a rich man. Yeah. And then he says, well, if I were a rich man, I would spend all my time uh, uh, reading and, and, and learning. Uh, so, so he would read and learn and, and study the Bible and so on as a way of, you know, spending his wealth, not as a way of getting, getting wealth. Oh, that's such an interesting contrast to what we're all taught. Because everyone is like, well, I got to read. I got to get smart. I got to get make money. And then I'm going to I'm going to go to Hawaii and wakeboard, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to read Homer to relax when I'm rich. This is so interesting. You're very interesting. I should talk to you more often about these things. Um, I would take your course. I recommend it. You know, I remember growing up, I would ask you like what you wanted me to be when I grow up. And you always said, that's not, that's not up to me. You have to follow your passions. You have to follow what you're interested in. And I will support your education no matter what you want to do. But for you, it was different, wasn't it? Like you, you as a kid, you all, you were very, very smart. You were bored at school and you wanted to study astronomy, right? Physics. Physics and astronomy. But your dad, Papote, who was a, you know, a, a, a Holocaust survivor who only got a second grade education and was able to make a, you know, a very profitable company knowing, you know, very little quote unquote, what we consider school knowledge. You're very much into education. So you are an academic. What made you decide to study economics specifically? And what, what, what made you so interested in, 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 what you do, which by the way, has inspired me to find passion in what I do. You love what you do. So what inspired you? 
So let me say that I, the excuses I gave myself to why study economics all turned out to be wrong. Oh my God. <laughs> so I wanted to study physics and philosophy. And those were taught in schools of art and science, where art is a word that comes from Greek that means like a craft. Mm-hmm. And arts and sciences didn't mean art right. in the artsy interpretation. But my dad didn't know that. So he said, you know, so you you finished high school. So high school in Spanish is bachiller. Mm-hmm. And then and then are you going to university, but not to university, but to a college. Well, you, you went to a college already, a colegio. So, so there's a lot of language issues here. So, so he said, no, no, if you go to university, it is, is to get a profession, to get a, a, a professional degree, something that you can use to... To earn a living. A hard skill. A hard skill. So so he says, engineering, okay, but arts and science, no. So he he laid the law the, the law and said, No, you know, you have to go to a school of engineering, not to a school of arts and science, because that's very Frilly, frilly, fluffy. The irony that most of his grandchildren are pretty much in the arts, except for like one doctor. Okay, anyway, continue. <laughs> so I found a program in Applied and engineering physics. That's a lot of words. Yeah. So it's like applied physics at Cornell. So like using physics for like real world stuff. Yeah. It was a degree in engineering. So okay. it's sort of like it was good enough for my dad and yeah. it was close enough to what I wanted to do. So I ended up doing that. I, I would have been happier had I studied in arts and science, but I learned a lot of interesting stuff, electric circuits, thermodynamics, material science. Et you studied with Bill Nye. Bill Nye was in your, yes. your class. Yes. yes. And then uh, in my senior year, I, I took two courses in economics, a little bit because I had taken philosophy and philosophy of science. And then I kind of started to think that that social sciences are actually harder than physical sciences and well because it's intangible like you beca- know, because you it's know. harder to make progress because uh, uh, you know you cannot isolate things in the lab because there are people you could isolate them but you know the yeah. geneva convention <laughs> yeah so i thought you know it made it intellectually more interesting because before that i would have said no i want to do hard stuff yeah and and suddenly it appeared that it was hard and secondly i said to myself i want to go back to Venezuela, mm-hmm. and I actually I would spend my summers in Venezuela working at the National Institute of Scientific Research in in the physics department. And I realized that to go back to Venezuela as a physicist probably made little sense because well, as we were talking about before, what will if what a physicist do in Venezuela if the hospital is not specialized for physicists? Exactly, mm-hmm. but economies are different, so it would make sense to go back as an economist, but it would not make sense to go back as a physicist. Mm-hmm. So I ended up switching my PhD application to economics. How old were you? Uh, I was like 21. Uh, what? You got your PhD at 21? No, I got my PhD at a few weeks before turning 25. Oh, okay. So cool. I got my UCB improv diploma when I was 25. So <laughs> anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, improv is very useful if you're teaching. That'd be true. Because, you know, then you can, you know, get a question from the audience and what do you do with it? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's also it's also very useful um, in meeting a lot of uh, white guys called Connor um, <laughs> that are all very nice. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. 
So I, I went back to Venezuela, but it ended up being that I went back to Venezuela for something like a decade or maybe 12 years. Yeah. But the, then the rest of my life, I have been back in the U.S. So I also thought that economics was going to do more progress during my lifetime than physics because it was just a younger science and it was bound to... Like Newton kind of was like the rock star of physics. Yeah. But economics, like rock star is what, like Adam Smith or something? Or... Yeah, but, but but even there, you know, the current economics probably you want to say Marshall or somebody like that, which is a century ago. But it, it, progress in economics, I thought, was bound to be faster during my lifetime. And I think that that also turned out not to be true, that the, I see the transformation in our understanding of the physical world from what I was taught to what is currently thought as being dramatically more significant than the amount of progress that has been done in economics. So, so I got into economics for maybe all the wrong excuses I gave myself yes. in those days, but it generated an enormous passion in me and trying to understand how the world works. How, how could you possibly act on it to improve it? You know, what can be done to, you know, make prosperity more accessible to more people? So it sounded like very in, important to ask these questions and very interesting the kinds of things you could find as potential answers. I've always liked to uh, reimagine answers that are different from the ones I started to interpret the world with. So I'm perfectly happy to to change the glasses to which I I see the world. And I've done it several times over over my career. And and right now I'm uh, I'm trying to see uh, to what extent uh, I can create knowledge that is particularly useful uh, to diagnose problems of uh, you know lack of economic dynamism and 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 figure out paths to prosperity and and that keeps me uh, busy and uh, entertained that seems like pretty pretty important work um you know every time i get interviewed i get asked this question which is like how did you uh a daughter of two economists end up doing art and my brother and sister are also both in the art space but what you just described, which is trying to ex is trying to understand the world, I think, is uh, ilo conductor in all of what we do, which is in in the know how in our house and at the dining table was qu asking questions why why are things a certain way and trying to draw your own conclusions and create your own hypotheses, which I do in my everyday life consistently with comedy, so we kind of do we kind of have. The same know-how, but just apply it in different ways. Absolutely. I mean, I, I am always amazed at your ability. From the time you were very, uh, very young, you would imitate people. But you would imitate aspects of people that nobody had paid attention to until you sort of like caught, caught the, these little details. So, so in your imitation... It, you expressed an understanding of their nature, or an understanding of what makes them tick. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that that's something I can relate to. You're trying to get into the mind of somebody else, get into, into their perception of the world, and, and be able to describe it in probably in ways that they would not be able to describe it because fish don't know they are in water. Yes. They take water for granted. And so 
since you were kind of like out of water and we, we kind of like changed your waters too many times, uh, you always complain by the fact that you went to too many schools. We moved you around between England, Caracas, Potomac, D.C., Boston, Caracas, back to, you know. I think I went to eight schools. <laughs> you had the ability to see people kind of like from an outside perspective in ways that they probably couldn't because they were in water and they, they were unaware of their water. Right. And I always love observing things and why people are certain ways and trying to get to the core of that, which isn't, you know, just an exercise in, in being human. I think it's an exercise in science. It's like you, you, you find something odd out of the ordinary and try and figure out what's the source of it through through experimentation. But my experimentation is just conversation, getting to know people, but <laughs> sometimes a little research. But, you know, I, I do think there is uh, a curiosity that it needs to be fed in in both of us. And we're constantly curious about how the world ticks around us. And um, it makes life a lot more fun. Absolutely. I, I think that uh, in the end, uh, it's, uh, you know, playing brain games. Well, you do love your Sudoku, so. <laughs> but brain games is uh, useful both in science and in art. It's uh, We're using the same part of the human body. True words have never been spoken. Anyway, you um, got to get the barbecue ready because we have a barbecue party later today. Um, yeah, your husband's birthday. Yeah, we got a birthday celebration. Um, got some steaks. Got to pick up a cake. We're going to party, you know, party party how, how we know best, which is eating and hanging out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Professor Hausman. Um, it's been an honor to know you for 33 years, and thank you for making me. High five. Thank you for being who you are. <laughs> Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Let go with Ego. Existen dos tipos de personas en el mundo. Los que prefieren un desayuno dulce con frutas, dulce de leche y un jugo de naranja. Y los que prefieren un desayuno salado con chorizo, huevos rancheros y un café. Pero sin importar qué tipo de persona eres, hay algo que a todos les va a gustar. Los crujientes y esponjosos Ego Waffles. Ya sea que te guste un desayuno salado, con huevos o salsa picante encima de tus waffles, o seas más dulcero y los prefieras con mantequilla y miel. Encuéntranos en el pasillo de desayunos congelados. Lego with Ego.